You're listening to Kiss My Aesthetic, your go-to podcast for bragworthy branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship advice. I'm your host, Michelle Winterstein of MKW Creative Co. Let's dive into the episode. Greetings and welcome back to the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. I'm so excited to have Sarah, head cheesemaker from Rock Hill Cheese on the podcast today. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Oh my gosh, we're going to have so much fun talking about this project. I've been deep in Rock Hill Cheese world, helping, of course, get the socials kickstarted. Our team helps with a lot of the branding, but we are spending this interview getting to know you and getting to know the process really well, because as someone who loves food and loves cheese, I can't believe you're the first cheesemaker I've ever met. (laughs) Yeah, cheesemakers are awesome. You should meet some more. I know. I know. So for anyone who doesn't know you or isn't familiar with Rock Hill Cheese, can you kind of give us the backstory as to who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my name's Sarah and I started with Rock Hill Creamery in 2012. My background, actually, I kind of came into it through a love of plants and animals and kind of being connected to the land. So I actually was working on a master's in plant science and ended up studying forages for dairy cattle, which it sounds like way far away from cheese. But I kind of fell in love with dairy farming and just the connection between the people working with the cows, the cows grazing on the land, and then taking that milk and turning it into cheese and then connecting that to the community. It just really all kind of comes together in cheese. So that was kind of how I got inspired to pursue cheese making. And Rock Hill Creamery was very central in that. So Rock Hill Creamery was actually started quite a while before I came on by Pete Schropp and Jennifer Hines in 2005. And they own this beautiful historic farm in Richmond, Utah. And they really wanted to figure out a way to make a living off of their historic farm, which is really difficult. (laughs) All farms are beautiful, amazing parts of our communities and our food culture, but it's a really hard way to make a living. So they tried a number of things before they settled on artisan cheese, and it was really artisan cheese that started to work for them. So when I started at Rock Hill, we were actually milking cows and making cheese there on the farm, which was just good for my soul. It was wonderful to get to work with the cows and then take that milk and transform it into cheese and then be able to share that with people at farmer's markets, with chefs. Yeah, it's just wonderful. So yeah, that's kind of like, in a nutshell, the big story of Rock Hill. Oh my gosh. Oh, it sounds like the most fun. I think it's something that I'm super fascinated by. I'm a big traveler and because I love to travel, I also love food and like trying foods and local cultures. And I feel that this is something that in the US, we don't have that strong of a tie to like the actual food sources a lot of times, right? So you just kind of explained about how cool it was to see the plants grow and then the cows eat the plants and then milk the cows and then get the milk and turn it into cheese. What do you feel like drew you into that space besides just being curious, like from like a food perspective? Like, did you have that kind of angle with wanting to get involved with the creamery? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I definitely started from an interest in farming. 
So I think my knowledge of cheese <laughs> really grew out of that. Like I wanted to have my hands in the dirt, be working with the animals. So it was really the first, the soil and the plants that I was all about that. And then the cows, I just, cows are amazing animals. <laughs> and then the farmers themselves, like I just, I love the dairy farmers. And then when I started making cheese, that was actually when I started working with Pete and Jennifer. So they're the original founders of Rock Hill. And it was Jennifer Hines. She was the one who taught me how to make cheese. Cool. I did take one class at USU. So Utah State University has a short course in artisan cheese making. But, you know, it's three days and you don't learn a craft like cheese making in three days. You get some basics. But Jennifer is really the one who taught me and kind of started introducing me to that world as well of, you know, chefs and cheesemongers and other artisan cheesemakers. So yeah, it really, I guess I've always been very much interested in the community aspect, how, how really all of these different beings come together around cheese. It's just, I love that. Yeah. I want to go back to what you were saying about process. As being someone that's never made cheese before, I'm fascinated. And just even in doing research for this project, I'm just thinking about how much volume of milk it takes to make cheese was something I never thought about before. But kind of walk us through a beginner's guide to how cheese is actually made, like step-by-step process. <laughs> yeah. So I'll do my best not to get too in the weeds because there's... Oh, we love it. Get in those weeds, girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a very detail-oriented process, but it's also really simple in a way because almost all cheeses are made with a very similar process. And then it's just really small tweaks in that process that give all the huge range of flavors and textures that you find in cheese. So kind of the basic overview is you start with milk, right? And milk is made up of a liquid component and a solid component. And so cheese is essentially like, I mean, it's more than this, but it's kind of like dehydrated milk. You're mostly taking those solids and you're getting rid of most of the liquid part. So you were talking about volume. You get, if you start with a hundred pounds of milk, you end up with about 10 pounds of cheese. So, wow. Yeah. Most of that milk is water and some cheeses have quite a bit of water in them, but even those still, most of that goes into the whey. So yeah, it takes a lot of milk to make a little bit of cheese. And kind of the basic process is that first, the milk has to be acidified. So the pH drops. And the way that happens for most cheeses is, this is one of the coolest things about cheese making, I think. It's through microbial activity. So bacteria in the milk. Cool. So it's a fermented product, right? And so you hear all about like probiotics and how good they are for you. And so cheese is one of those. <laughs> so the bacteria, they're lactic acid bacteria. So as they're, you add them to the milk, we call them cultures. So we add the cultures to the milk and the milk at that point needs to be warm, whatever temperature those cultures like to grow. And then you let the cultures, those little microbes do their thing. So it's like this little ecosystem. 
So they're growing, and as they grow, they produce lactic acid, which is what acidifies the milk. And that's the first step in the cheesemaking process. And how long is that first step take, typically? So you have all your milk, you're adding in all the cultures. What's the range of days that it takes to make that happen? Yeah, so it's usually not days. It's usually hours. Oh, okay. But it can really vary depending on how the cheese is made and what cultures you're using, what kind of cheese you want. But so for most of the cheeses that we make at Rock Hill, culturing time is probably between half an hour and like two hours. Okay, nice. Yeah. So pretty short, really. Cool. But that's just the time that you're waiting for those cultures to grow. And then there's another step where we add an enzyme to the milk. The enzyme is called rennet. Mm -hmm. And it originally was always, it's an enzyme that's naturally found in the stomach of calves, kids, lambs. So all of the animals that we get milk from to make cheese, their babies produce this enzyme in their gut. And what it does is it coagulates milk. So it turns the milk into kind of a solid. It's like jello. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Is what it's like. So we add the cultures. We let the cultures start growing. The milk start to acidify. And then we add the rennet and that turns the milk into like a jello, what we would call curd. I researched this a little bit. Yeah. I researched it a little bit just in trying to understand the brand better. And it says that cheese actually was probably discovered on accident Mm -hmm. because there were people that were storing milk in animal skins and in the stomach pouches, right? Like of animals realizing that that enzyme, exactly what you're talking about, the rennet is what actually solidified it and turned it into a solid to be able to, and then people were like, okay, let's just eat this. (laughs) Absolutely. And then that's how cheese was originated? Yeah. That's wild. Absolutely wild. Isn't it crazy? I mean, some of it sounds like really outlandish, but it is just so amazing that all of these things, like even, so we add cultures today. Sure. These are cultures that are, you know, isolated and they're exactly what we want, but you can make cheese from just raw milk and just the bacteria, the lactic bacteria naturally end up in the milk. They're what grows in that environment. And so back in the day, yeah, people didn't add them. They just came from the environment. Naturally. Which is insane. Yeah. Kind of crazy, huh? Yeah. Okay. So then step three, we have a whole bunch of curd. Explain curd because you can eat cheese curds. Yeah. That's a very popular uh, thing, especially like around Wisconsin, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like cheese curds as a dish. So what is a curd exactly? And how does the curd turn into cheese? Yeah. So the cheese curds that we all love to eat are actually a little bit different from the curd that I'm talking about. Okay. So what I'm talking about is, you know, the nursery rhyme about little Miss Muffet Mm -hmm. eating her curds and whey. (laughs) That would be the curds that I'm talking about. Ah, okay. So curds and whey is kind of the middle step in the cheese making process. So we started with a vat full of milk. We started acidifying it with the cultures. We added the rennet and it turned into this jello. And then that, sure. I mean, it's not jello, it's curd, but that's kind of the consistency of it. Then we cut that curd. So we're cutting that kind of 
jello milk mass into pieces. And those become the curds and they're floating in whey at that point. So that's our curds and whey. And they're really soft, kind of pillowy. It's amazing. You stir them and cook them then. So they'll be in a vat full of whey. And as you stir and cook, they lose moisture and they kind of, they harden up a little bit. And so the texture really changes. Is this when you're using that giant like rake tool to slice through it? I feel like I've maybe seen this on video. That's the cutting. Okay. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself. Keep going. Keep going. So we did that. That's what we use to turn that jello mass into the curds is that rake that we call them uh, harps. Harps. Okay. So cheese harps. Nice. Yeah. And they do kind of look like harps. So yeah, what we use at Rock Hill is, you know, it's essentially like a metal frame with, you know, stainless steel strings on it. And it does look just like a harp that you can play. (laughs) That's cool. That's cool. Okay. Next step. Sorry, I sidetracked you. (laughs) That's what we use to cut the curds and those curds are floating in the way. And eventually they get to the point where depending on whatever kind of cheese you're making, you're ready to drain the whey off. So then you have, that's the point where it starts to seem a little more like cheese because those curds at that point, they start to knit together. And so for Rock Hill cheese, we put them into a hoop or, you know, a form that they will press them into a wheel. If you were making cheese curds, like the cheese curds that you would get to eat, like in Wisconsin, you know, Mm -hmm. then that's a slightly different process. But those curds that were in the vat, they get matted into a mat. (laughs) And then the cultures are still in there. So the pH keeps dropping, it gets a little bit more acidic. And then that mat gets cut and salted. And so it gets cut into those little pieces that look like the cheese curds that you would buy at the store. Okay, this is helpful. Okay, so then if you're going to make different types of cheeses, there's different variables that you're playing with to get the different kinds of flavors and textures and profiles. So let's kind of describe, if you could, a spectrum of the different types of cheese for someone who doesn't know anything about cheese. Let's assume someone's listening to this and they're like, yeah, I know yellow cheese and orange cheese and white (laughs) cheese, and they don't know anything else, right? Their experience is like just whatever they get at the grocery store. How do you explain kind of the difference on a spectrum of different artisanal cheeses? Yeah, that's a little bit of a difficult question. There are a number of different ways to group cheeses. So from the perspective of a cheesemaker, I like to group them based on how you make cheeses. Ooh, okay, yes, let's learn about this. So that's kind of what works in my mind because that's where I'm focused is on the actual making process. So the process that I described to you where we add culture, we add rennet, and then we have curds floating in the way and we cook them for some time. Most of the cheeses that you might think of are made that way. So Gouda is made that way. Gruyere is made that way. Even cheddar is made that way. Cheddar has some extra steps at the end. But there are some cheeses that are a little bit different. So, for example, mozzarella is a stretched curd cheese. So it has an extra step where the curds are hot 
and you actually stretch them to give it that special texture. And then there's a group of cheeses that are called bloomy rind cheeses. So those would be anything like a brie or a camembert that has, when you buy it at the grocery store, it would be, you're buying like a whole wheel usually. Yep. And there's that white fuzzy rind on the outside and you eat the rind, right? So those are bloomy rind cheeses. Those are also made pretty much with that same sequence, but you adjust the make a little bit to keep more moisture in the cheese. And then it's really in the aging at the end, the way those wheels are treated. That's what makes it bloom like it does. Got it. Yeah. I feel like I don't have a very organized answer to this question because there's so many different kinds of cheese. No, you're doing a great job. There's an infinite amount of cheese. That's the thing. And like, I think that that's what makes it so fun to explore is every time I'm inquisitive about it, I learn something new, but you're doing a great job. <laughs> I want to hear more. Yeah. So another group of cheeses would be brined cheeses. So like feta, for example, it's made with the same basic process that I told you, but then at the end, extra salt is added and the cheese actually ages in a brine. So one way to think about the differences between cheeses is kind of in that aging process at the end. So like we're talking about brined cheeses. So feta would actually, after it's made, it goes into a salt brine and it stays in that brine for varying amounts of time, depending on how strong you want your cheese. Generally, the longer cheese ages, the stronger the flavor gets. Because those cultures, again, they're still active in there and they're making all these different kinds of flavors. And you can adjust the environment for the cheese. You know, if it's in a brine, obviously it's floating in a liquid, or you can have it like wheels of cheese in a really humid environment, in a drier environment, in a warmer environment, or a cooler environment. And all of those things affect how the cultures grow inside of the cheese and the flavors that you end up with at the end. Fascinating. Talk about the ones that you have at Rock Hill Cheese. I know you have a lot of variations on Gouda and Edam and some really delicious cheeses. And those are, we're also classifying as cave aged. Yeah. Explain cave aged to me because I've never seen that on any like cheese labels <laughs> here, or maybe I wasn't paying as close of attention as I should, but that sounds absolutely fascinating. So kind of walk us through that part of the process. Yeah, that's a really unique part of Rock Hill cheese. So what cave aged means to us is we have our cheese cave. So it is underground cement walls. And so it's designed to mimic the natural environment of a cave because a lot of artisan cheeses were first developed in Europe and some European cheeses are still aged in natural caves. We don't have a natural cave, but so we did our best to recreate that environment. And so the kind of, it feels like you would imagine a cave, you know, you go down the stairs and it's cool. It's like generally around 55 degrees and it's humid. And the cheese we have on wooden boards and the cheeses are not wrapped in plastic. 
they're just on the wooden boards and every week, twice a week, we go in and we flip those wheels of cheese over and we look for any kinds of maybe there. So some kinds of mold we like to see on the rind of cheese, right? You think mold, you think bad, but that's not always true with cheese, right? Okay. Yeah. Some kinds of mold make good flavors. Some kinds of mold, not so good. So we twice a week, every week we're going in and going through every cheese that's in the cave. And what we don't like to see is blue mold kind of fluffy blue mold like you would imagine growing on you know stale bread (laughs) or produce that's left out yeah right yeah in some kinds of cheese like blue cheese that mold is actually good which is crazy okay (laughs) how can you tell the difference between mold you can eat and mold you can't eat so generally the best way with cheese is flavor So if the flavor, and this is also very subjective because some people think that blue cheese is nasty, right? Some people think blue is the most delicious thing in the entire world. Oh, I love it. I can't get enough of it. Me too. I'm all about all the cheese. (laughs) But some cheeses are a little funkier than others. And for some people, that's just like the best thing ever. Other people, maybe not so much. So really with cheese, we have, for Rock Hill cheese, we have kind of an idea in our minds of what we want it to taste like. Sure. And so for us, when that blue mold starts growing in the cheese, it's not going to hurt you. Right. But it's not the flavor that we want. Ah. So we've just learned that by making the cheese, trying to get the flavors we want, and observing what happens in our little ecosystem. So it's a very subjective and artisanal process. It's no kidding. We can't control a hundred percent everything about the cheese, but that's part of what's beautiful about it is that we also, we don't pasteurize our milk. We don't homogenize our milk. So a lot of cheesemakers, like if you go to the grocery store, and you get that white cheese or yellow cheese that you were talking about. Sure. Every time you buy it, it's going to taste the same, mm-hmm. right? Like you expect consistency. With artisan cheese, that's not necessarily the goal because the milk changes with the seasons. And so if the cows are out on pasture in the summer, that's different from when they're in the barn in the winter eating hay. Mm. And in the spring and the fall, the milk is kind of in between. And so to make that white cheese or yellow cheese that you get from the grocery store, that's always the same. What the industrial cheesemakers do is they take the milk and they essentially break it down into its different components. So they separate it into cream, skim milk, they pasteurize it. And then they put it back together so that they always have exactly the same thing. Whereas at an artisan scale at Rock Hill, we love that seasons change our food. And so we take the milk and we do, our goal is to kind of shepherd the milk into being cheese. (laughs) So we don't take it apart and put it back together. We take it as it is and do minimal processing, 
and then work with the environment that we have to create the best flavors we can and flavors that are really unique to Rock Hill cheese because they come from, you know, Richmond, Utah, our little cave. (laughs) And that particular herd of Jersey cows that we get our milk from. So all of those things, we really kind of work with the ecology, really, of what's happening with the grass, the cows, the milk. Of course. The aging cave itself. So we do get some variability and we like it. (laughs) I think that part is so cool. Yeah. Why not? Right? Like, That's what makes it fun and exciting. And it makes you as a consumer excited to try the new varietal, right? Like it's really sounds really similar to winemaking in a lot of ways, because you're working with the terroir and the rainfall and the grape quality. And of course, if you have a heavy rain year and your grapes are plumper and there's more water content in them, that's going to change the character of the wine. And I think that that whole process is so interesting. And it's something that people, I think, one, take for granted and two, like, don't even take the time to understand. It's absolutely crazy. What's something about cheese making that you wish more people knew? You know, I think that what we've been talking about just now is really something that I wish more people understood that cheese making, it's both a science and an art. And you can take it in a very scientific direction and really make a product that is 100% consistent always the same. Or you can go in a more artistic direction and make a product that really represents what's happening on the land and in the place where the cheese is being made. And that product is not going to be 100% consistent. It's going to change. And that that change is a good thing. I mean, from some perspectives, right? Like some people want consistency and some people want to really taste the terroir like you were talking about. And those are both really important parts of our food system. But I think this more artistic, artisanal cheese really isn't very well understood. But as people start to to learn a little bit more about it, I think it's really easy to get excited about it because it makes you pay more attention to what it is you're tasting and think about like, oh, well, why did it taste a little bit different last time? And I wonder if it had to do with the cows being out on the pasture and, you know, and then you think, well, maybe I should go and visit the farm where this cheese came from and see what's happening. And maybe I should talk to the cheesemaker or maybe I should talk to my other friends who love cheese and see if they tasted the same thing. So I guess that sort of more artisanal mindset is something that I wish more people understood about cheese. Yeah, especially for how pertinent cheese is in the American diet, right? Like everyone knows what cheese is. Think about how many restaurant menu items are simply a carb and a cheese, like a grilled cheese sandwich, nachos, like raclette and fondue. Like the whole basis of that is a carb with a cheese on top. So it's so interesting, like you said, to ask those kind of questions, to dig a little bit deeper and start to get a better understanding and just see how much variety there is in that space. But I will say one of the things we talked about in the brand design process when I was asking Sawyer about 
kind of his vision and where he thinks these things could go and, and what some of the things that Rock Hill had been struggling with before is a lot of people's opposition to buying artisanal products is price point, right? So they like don't understand why the fancy cheese costs what it does. Obviously, we've talked about it at length about the process, but how do you answer that question for someone who's like, yeah, I want to, but I just could never spend that on cheese? Yeah. So talking about why artisanal cheese costs so much more and why it's worth it. So the reason for the difference in price goes back through the entire process. So it starts with the dairy farm. So dairy farming is a really challenging business. As dairy farms get bigger, they get more efficient. And so milk can be produced for an extremely low cost. But the dairy farms that produce milk for an extremely low cost are milking hundreds, often thousands of cows. And the way I like to think about the difference is that those really big industrial dairies are kind of like, those cows are kind of like living in New York City, right? They're really well taken care of, but they're in their little apartments and out on cement. They don't hardly ever get to go out into, I mean, most dairies don't have a central park for their cows, <laughs> most of those big dairies. Sure, of course. So these are very urban cows that are kind of trapped in, you know, the equivalent of like apartments and a sidewalk. Whereas smaller dairy farms can often have their cows out on pasture. So this would be more like living in a place where you have lots of parks and you can go hiking or you can go be outside. And you know how, like for us as people, that can just feel so good to be out in a green space. And similar for cows, when cows are out on pasture, they tend to be healthier. Happier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to say that the industrial farms are bad, but it's just a really different process, right? And so these smaller farms where the cows are out on pasture, it just costs a lot more to manage because each cow has a lot more space. When cows are eating grass, believe it or not, they don't produce quite as much milk. Interesting. So because their diets are not quite as managed, they're getting a little more exercise. So each cow produces a little bit less milk. Ah. And the dairy farmer, the person milking the cows, each time they go in, they're milking fewer cows. It takes a little bit longer. So everything about the process is less efficient. But there are other benefits, right? Cows are out on pasture. It's more human scale. So the big industrial farms generally are not places where you could take your kids and go see the cows being milked, right? Whereas these smaller dairies, like Cash Meadow Creamery, where we get our milk from, they're very open to having people come out to the farm, see the cows, make that connection to where their food is actually coming from. So smaller farms are just less efficient, but they provide us with all of these other benefits. So that's what you're paying for is really to have small scale farms still where we can still go and connect with 
the cows, with the farmers, see where our food comes from, and have that kind of diversity in our food system. So that's one of the reasons, starting with the cows. <laughs> it makes me think of that famous campaign. There was a famous campaign that used to run out here in California that says, happy cheese comes from happy cows. Happy cows come from California. <laughs> Real California cheese. It's the cheese. And the fact that I can remember that at the drop of a hat is wild. But I think that we, as a culture, as a culture, we're moving more towards this, right? Like mm -hmm. I think of the, I'm a member of a local wine club here in San Diego. It's an urban winery. They get their grapes from Northern California. They process all the wines here. But their ethos is that the more happy people that hang around their wine, the better their wine's going to taste. Yeah. So their tasting rooms are where they store all of their barrels and they play live music. And I got all my friends to get memberships and we go there and we play cards and they host yoga events and they host parties and just they want as many good people with good energy. It's very California and very woo-woo, <laughs> but they really believe that that has an impact on the way that the wine tastes. And I think that that idea is so refreshing in because it does kind of go against that like maximum efficiency, make a dollar, like that kind of very corporate-y kind of approach that other food brands can take, right? That when you actually slow down and you think about the process and you get to know the people and you described how much you love cows. I haven't been around a ton of cows in my life, admittedly. <laughs> what about getting to know these cows and working with the cows do you love the most? Oh, so many things. But I also really love goats and sheep. Okay, nice. I've milked all of them. And one of my favorite things about ruminants these animals that we get our milk from is watching them ruminate. Okay. <laughs> Which sounds ridiculous, but it is the most peaceful thing ever. So cows and goats and sheep, they graze pastures, right? And I love that. That's probably one of my favorite things too, is just watching them just eating. They're out on the pasture and, you know, a cow to get enough energy from pasture has to spend a lot of time grazing. So they're just out there just munching away. And that sound of them, you know, tearing the grass and just walking along. I love it. And then they sit down or lay down and they ruminate. So they chew their food a second time, which maybe sounds a little gross. But yeah. <laughs> when you're watching them, they're just so relaxed. I think that's what I like the most about working with animals is just the moments when you realize that, you know, just laying in the sun and enjoying your food is, that's kind of all you need, you know? Totally. Like they just seem so content and yeah. So I think that's probably my favorite thing is just that feeling of like, the simple things in life are really all you need. Totally. That's super, it's really refreshing because I think it's so easy to, like we said before, take that for granted or get stuck in the, I got to do this and this to-do list and this deliverable. And I can totally be like that. So I think that, yeah, that's kind of a refreshing way to think about it. I think about that a lot through my dog. <laughs> like, thank goodness I got a dog during the pandemic because at least I know I'm getting an hour long walk every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if not for him and him needing to go out, like, I don't know. I could see myself getting so sucked in where you forget to like take a break and breathe and enjoy the things that like are those simple pleasures, right? Yeah. What's your favorite part about the cheese making process? Hmm. 
Is there a step in that process that you're like, oh, I can't wait. This is happening today. (laughs) You know, I think for me, what I really love is starting the day with a vat full of milk and ending the day with wheels that look like cheese. It's not cheese yet because at that point, it doesn't taste anything like cheese, but you start, it's just this like transformation. I think that's my favorite part really is that just guiding that transformation. Like at the end of the day, after a cheese make, I always feel like I've done something. I mean, this sounds kind of funny, but it feels in a way like important. Of course. Yeah. You know, I can see exactly what I've done. I've turned this milk into these beautiful wheels of cheese that eventually people are going to eat and enjoy and really savor and feel like they have this special, you know, treat that really helps connect them to this place that I love that idea. That's so beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Let's kind of go, if we can, rapid fire through some of your favorite Rock Hill cheeses and how you would describe them or what you like to eat them with or how you see other people enjoy them. Can you share some of your favorites with us? Yeah. So we have kind of this group of cheeses that we call reserve cheeses. They're aged for over a year. So they get this really deep flavor that is unique to Rock Hill because of all the things that we talked about. And there are two that are kind of tied for my favorite. So one is the Wasatch Mountain Reserve. So the Wasatch Mountain, it's an alpine style cheese, which means that the curds are cooked for a really long time and it gets specific flavors. So when it's aged for over a year, it gets kind of almost like a hint of sweetness to it. It's almost like a little bit caramely. It's really kind of rich umami flavor. It's got a harder texture. It's kind of like a grating cheese, but I love to just... I like that. Yeah. And it's amazing. Grated over. It will take your pasta, your soup, your salad up to the next level. And it's delicious. But I probably, my favorite way is just to eat it just on a cheese plate because I love the flavor so much. I like it with fruits. It's actually really good with citrus fruit. So like the Wasatch Reserve with like grapefruit. Ooh. So good. That is an interesting combo I hadn't thought about before. Yeah. And then the Snow Canyon Edam is another aged cheese. So similar texture, but different flavor profile. It's a little bit more like a lot of people like at the farmer's market will compare it to like a Parmigiano. Okay. And it's really amazing on a cheese board, like with salami. Ooh. So good. Yeah. With some of your like artisan cured meats. Really good. I love that like gritty, salty little crystal textures. What causes the crystals to happen in cheeses? It's that aging process. So you only get those in really aged cheeses. So our Snow Canyon Edam will get those crystals. Yeah. So good. I love those little like crunchy, delicious, like mm, so tasty. Yeah. Love it. If you could encourage someone who's never kind of stepped their foot into artisan cheeses, where would you recommend that they start? Let's say they want to come over to Rock Hill and buy some of the cheeses that we just talked about. How would you recommend that they go about even just tasting the cheeses for the first time? Is there kind of like tasting notes like you do with wine? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the things, if you want to taste, if you want to get a sense of, say, one cheesemaker's varieties. So you want to come to Rock Hill Cheese and you kind of want to experience, like, oh, what is Rock Hill Cheese all about? I would pick maybe like three cheeses and make yourself a cheese board. And our cheeses are all delicious for cooking with. But if you really want to understand the different flavors, it's best to just eat them by themselves. And so the two cheeses that I told you about that are my favorites are the reserve aged cheeses. But we also have a number of cheeses that are delicious when they're young. And so those younger cheeses are going to have a softer texture and a kind of a milder flavor. So I would pick for Rock Hill cheese, a younger cheese, and then kind of a stronger flavored, kind of medium aged cheese, and then a reserve cheese that's aged for over a year. And then you want to start with the young cheese that's got that milder flavor, because if you start with the really aged cheese, that flavor overwhelms the young one, right? And kind of work your way through. And then you can get a real sense for the range of flavors that Rock Hill has. Ooh, I see like a cheese tasting experience happening in the Rock Hill cheese future. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that could be something like I envision it almost on like an Airbnb experiences, like come for a cheese making day and we'll end with the cheese course and kind of walk you through exactly what you just described, right? Like we're going to take you through the range of our varieties of cheeses. Have you thought about where you see Rock Hill cheese going or what your dream vision if it's three years down the road and Rock Hill is running like beyond your wildest dreams, where do you feel like it could go? Well, exactly what you were just describing, I think would be perfect for Rock Hill to really be more of an experiential kind of a cheese making operation, a place where people can come and really see how the cheese is made. And I'm really excited that Hemsley Ventures is considering moving the cheese making closer to where the cows are, because that's how Rock Hill used to be. We milked the cows and made the cheese and having that close connection, it's just beautiful. I love that. So in three years, if Rock Hill Creamery were there at the ranch and the dairies right across the street and making cheese a couple times a week and having people come in and learn about the cheese making process while we're making cheese, having people visit the dairy to see where the cows are milked, and then also having a place where people can taste the cheese and learn about it. I really think that would be like the ideal future for Rock Hill to keep the process small, keep it artisan, Mm -hmm. and really focus on the experience side of it helping people come in and really learn about what artisan cheese is and how the small farm artisan cheese process really creates flavors that you can't get anywhere else that are unique to this place. And that's the reason why it's worth it to when you're spending a little extra money on a treat for yourself to buy that expensive fancy cheese because it's a unique experience for you And it's supporting all of these small farms and these artisans who are doing this beautiful work. And I just, yeah, I think sharing that would be like the best future for Rock Hill. And your passion for it is so palpable. And I think that people like to support people who are passionate. So 
I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It was your first podcast interview, but you crushed it. You absolutely crushed it. And we're really excited to follow along. Where can everyone learn more about Rock Hill Cheese? Maybe try some of the cheeses, follow the process, all of that stuff. Let's plug these handles. Yeah. And I'll help you. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) So the website is a great place, rockhillcheese.com. And we're on Facebook as Rock Hill Cheese. And also on Instagram at Rock Hill Cheese. Yep. And we're starting up the TikTok account as well. That's rockhill.cheese. We couldn't get just the regular Rock Hill Cheese. There's a dot right in the middle. Don't you forget it. But we'll have all that linked in the show notes as well. So in case you want to click more about today's episode, it'll be linked for you there. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. I feel like I know so much more about cheese now and I'm so excited. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to share. Bye. Thanks so much, guys. Catch you next time. See ya. Thanks for joining us for the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. Don't forget to follow along and leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in the Kiss My Aesthetic Facebook group for years and years of behind the scenes content and over 5,000 connections with fellow creatives. For show notes from today's episode, please visit mkwcreative.co slash podcast. This episode was edited by Berta Wired and theme music comes from Eliza Vera and Nathan Menard. Catch you next time. Catch you next time.